Well, welcome. I want to pray before we get started, okay? Lord, it is so good to be here with you. And Lord, as we're going to talk about today, Lord, I know that that's always true. Lord, you, your presence surrounds us. And Lord, it's really amazing. Lord, we don't have to invite you here. This is your world. And we are your people. And even more than that, we're gathered in your name. And Jesus, you promised that you would be here with us. So Lord, we look to you today to accomplish the things that only you can accomplish. Lord, for the things that need to happen today, Lord, people can't do. But you can. Lord, we ask that you would move and address each person here exactly the way that they need to hear from you. And we trust you for it. Through Jesus our Lord, amen. That's our confidence today. Is the God of heaven, and we're going to talk about some of his attributes, but he knows you, and he knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you need, and he deals with you as an individual. He's not confused. He's not distracted. He's not giving you a piece of his attention. So the other day at my house, to give you the contrast, so one of my daughters, no, we were at uh, Marjorie's mama's uh, house, and one of my daughters, apparently, I didn't realize it, had been calling me from the other end of the table, and I didn't hear her. And then the other one, who happens to have a louder voice that's more shrill, who isn't here today, she called me, and I heard her and my kids say that I have a remarkable ability to hear what I want to hear, right? God has a remarkable ability to make himself heard. That's my hope. And that's yours. If it, de- if it depends on me to hear I'm in trouble, although I do have a responsibility in that. I'm not taking it away. I can, you know, hinder, but praise God, he can make himself heard. I'm thankful for that. So today, uh, I, I, so I heard a guy say one time, the good thing about the 11 o'clock service is that we can, I can just keep on as long as it takes, right? The first service, I got to finish. So I heard a guy say one time, when you're giving a speech or a sermon, he said, what you do is you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to tell you what I told you. And we'll practice that later on. So the premise of the sermon today is that the, knowing God is the highest goal and the highest privilege of humans. But our sin brings about a skewed and obscure vision of God. When we consider his greatness, some of his attributes, his omnipresence, his omniscience, that he knows everything, and his omnipotence and his goodness, we are amazed that he would choose to reveal himself and save people like us. Now, when we don't realize that, I would say we're not in our right mind. 
But we're in our right mind when we recognize what God has done to save us. He didn't win the prize, so to speak, when he got us. You know what I'm saying? Although he puts that kind of value on us. We can only know him rightly, correctly, by the work of the Holy Spirit through his word and in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can know God correctly. And God has given us, he's given for us and to us his own son and his own word. So that's the premise today. So we have an incredible privilege to know God, but we have a problem. Now the problem, well, let's start with the privilege. How about that? Since that's the way my notes run, I really get confused. So you guys have heard me before mention a a preacher from the 1800s, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in case you want to be precise. And he preached for about 60 years, 60 years in the same pulpit at Park Street Chapel in London. Thousands of people came to hear him week after week. His sermons were transcribed and published all over the world for the, for the building up of God's people. When he was 20 years old, he began a sermon with these words that I want to read to you. He said, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, and the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will more humble the mind than thoughts of God. That's a good place to start. He said, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect Nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, and continued investigation of the great subject of God. And I would say amen. 20-year-old man, that was the fountain that he preached out of for 60 years. So today, anything I say, I've got a picture in my mind of a man standing maybe on a boat over the Marianas Trench. Anybody know? I know some of y'all know what the Marianas Trench is. How deep is the Marianas Trench in the ocean? Some of you homeschooled students know this, I know. About how deep? About six miles, real deep, 35,000 feet. That's deep. And today, I'm going to be like a man skimming a rock across the surface of the water saying, I understand the Marianas Trench. I don't. And today, anything I say is going to be like skimming the surface of the depth and the majesty of God because he is other than we are. And he is high and lifted up. And he is awesome. I had a professor in seminary, and this was back in the 90s, mid early 90s. And he said one day, he said, I'm really troubled by this trend where people are saying, awesome. You know, they're using the word awesome. He said, I would encourage you men not to use that word unless you're talking about God. 
because he is the only one who is awesome. And I believe it's true. He holds a place unlike anything or anyone else. Jeremiah 9.23, Pastor Joel mentioned this a few weeks ago. It says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. So the study, the contemplation of God is our highest privilege. But we have a problem. We have a sinful tendency that distorts our view of God. Let me read to you in Romans chapter 1. Now, the reality is that even as the people of God, we still struggle with this same thing. So, as you know, if you understand, we believe that when a person, we believe the Bible teaches that when a person comes to faith in Jesus, he receives a new nature. The Spirit of God comes to live in him. He is joined with Christ and therefore becomes a child of God. Correct? However, we also live in a body that's still related to our first father, which was Adam. And in his rebellion against God, he bought for us an inheritance of a tendency to sin, a sin nature that's still there that we're warring against. Paul said, reckon yourselves in King James or consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's still a battle going on. And I don't think I have to tell you that. I think you can all relate to it. So we still tend toward many of these same things. Romans chapter one begins in verse, where I'm going to read is in verse 19. It says, what can be known about God is plain to people because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, you would say, probably, possibly, golly, I can't believe people would do that. But guess what? You might not be so primitive as to go out in the backyard and find you a piece of oak and whittle out an idol for you. You might not, if you have been watching Forged in Fire and have a a forge at home, you might not create a molten idol. But our heart, our sinful heart, one writer says, is an idol factory. We have to war against this, and we constantly have to be elevating our perception of God through his word in order to come against that. So we create idols in our own image. They may not be physical representations, but they're in our heart and our mind when we entertain thoughts of God that aren't accurate about him. Human beings and even followers of Jesus battle with this tendency to not see God as he is. The fallen human mind constantly elevates our idea of who God is above who he truly is. We like to make these little potpourri gods. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, I like to think of God as 
whatever. And this is why the Bible is such, one of the things, one of the reasons why the Bible is so important, because if you study the Bible systematically going through the Bible, you're forced to deal with things that aren't comfortable. You can't neglect the parts you don't like. And there are parts of God that our sinful human nature isn't comfortable with. We wish he was a different way. But we don't really. Again, not when we're in our right mind. Let God be God and every man a liar. I knew who it was who was going to say that, by the way. God is who he is. Just as God prohibited the creation of physical images to represent him, he also would have us guard against thoughts and ideas of him that would diminish the glory that he's due. Does that make sense? We must constantly turn toward his self-revelation. That's a key. His self-revelation in the Bible and in the face of Jesus Christ through the illumination of the Holy Spirit to elevate our perception of him toward the truth. And I say toward the truth because we're not going to get there. There will not come a time when we have a comprehensive knowledge of God. Part of the joy of eternity probably is going to be seeing something different about God that we didn't see before or some degree of his majesty and beauty and power and all those things that we have not seen before. God is unimaginably great and that generates or should generate uh, in us a sense of gratitude that he is also good. Now, I'm going to set you up for that because I'm going to, you go, yeah, man, God is good. But the goodness of God doesn't mean what you think it means. We're going to get to that in a minute. Hold that, put a little check mark right there. Now, God has warned us about this tendency in the second commandment. So the commandments are actually good. The law is good, the Bible teaches us, right? In the New Testament, it says the law is good. Second commandment, here's the backstory. in case you don't know. Many of you do. So God has chosen a man years before named Abram. Chose him, changed his name to Abraham, and said, took him outside at night, and said, look up at the stars. So I was, last weekend, I was uh, at, at St. Simon's Island, and it was a little bit darker there, not, not super dark, but the amount of stars that I could see was very different than even what I can see here. And it reminded me, if I was somewhere where it was really dark, can you imagine what it was that Abraham saw? So a couple of things were happening there. God was revealing to Abraham his God's immensity but also the magnitude of God's promise. He said, I will give you descendants like the stars, like the sands on the seashore and all those sorts of things. So then God said to him, he told him, he said, You're gonna, a great nation's going to come for you. And then, shocker, surprise, they're going to be enslaved for 430 years. And Moses is probably going, why's that got to happen? Well, fast forward, exactly what God said would happen, happened. The children of Israel, the, uh, the descendants of Abraham, the patriarchs, went down to Egypt during a famine, and they got stuck there. 430 years later, God raises up a deliverer named Moses. Interesting thing about Moses, he's kind of making his way back toward Egypt, and all of a sudden, Moses conjured up an image of God that looked like a burning bush, right? No. 
God revealed himself. Remember this. This, is our, this, is, this should give an overarching hope to us. God intends to be known. Human beings can't ascend to heaven to bring down the knowledge of God. We would not know anything about him if he hadn't chosen to reveal himself. God is always the initiator. And this is what happened with Moses. So Moses sees a bush that is burning and not consumed, and he says, he has an encounter with God. I'm going to come back to what God said in a minute. Then they come out of Israel. They see the parting of the Red Sea. They pass through it, and they come to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, something dramatic in history happens. God creates a new nation. He enters into a covenant with them, and he gives the Ten Commandments. He said, these are the rules by which you should be governed. This is the way you need to live in order to please me. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. God warns about this tendency to create gods in our own image. He says in Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, one thing we learn about God is that he doesn't mind repeating himself. And I'm glad because I need him to. I, I'm, I, I'm, no joke, y'all. I'm, so I'm 59 now. And I have heard more increasing year over year. Daddy, you've already said that. Or I'll start to say something and they'll finish it. So apparently, I don't believe it, but apparently I repeat myself all the time. Well, maybe that's a God-like tendency because God does too. (laughs) Right? Well, maybe, you know, it's like God's like, well, you needed to hear it again, right? Deuteronomy chapter 4. So Deuteronomy is, uh, the name of the book comes from two words, deutero meaning second and namas meaning law. It's a second recitation, second presentation of God's law. So here's what Moses is telling the people in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He said, he's reminding them about that event at Mount Sinai. Have you guys ever, with your imagination, thought about what Mount Sinai must have been like? With the ground shaking and smoke and fire so much, you know, God said, don't even let an animal touch the mountain. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Interesting thing at that setting that people said, Moses, you go hear from God. Don't let him speak to us anymore. Ponder on that one for a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And then the Lord spoke. Spoke to you. Our God is a speaking God. It started in Genesis all the way to Revelation. God intends to be known. He spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. Key, you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant. Verse 15, therefore watch yourselves carefully since You saw no form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making an image, in this case, a carved image for yourself, 
in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is under the water, under the earth. That bout covers it, doesn't it? But then he says, and beware lest you raise your eyes to the heavens. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Now, there's a contrast coming up here that you can miss. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. All the peoples under the whole heaven versus you. You, God says, are my people. Don't, and, and I am God, there is no other. Don't be confused by all these things that I've given to all mankind and elevate them to a position of importance or a position of godhood, which is what all the nations have done and what the human mind tends to do. And again, you know, uh, y'all aren't going to go get a statue of an octopus and start worshiping it or anything like that, I don't think, or a platypus or whatever, you know, funky animal you might do, or even a bull or a goat. But because the human heart as it says in Jeremiah, is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked, our heart is an idol factory. And even though they may not be physical idols, we can create images of God and thoughts of God in our own mind that are not true to who he is. You all with me on that? That makes sense? Okay. Now, God also challenges us about this very thing in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, to whom will you compare me? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. God continually reminds us who he is because we have a tendency to lower God in our imagination. All through the Old Testament, he says, I am he. I am the one. It is I. He reminds, and then he gives instruction or command. He starts out with, first thing God does is remind you who he is, which is the authority for everything that comes after it. He says, don't forget, don't discount what I'm about to say. Remember, I am the Lord your God. Isaiah 42 is a great example of this. Thus says the Lord, God, who created the heavens and the earth and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord and therefore to be heeded to be listened to, to be followed, loved, and obeyed. And remember, God is first. Everything flows out of his revelation of himself. Our job is to continually look and listen in order to keep a right perception of God. Y'all, I, true confession, and if you'll be honest, you may say the same thing. Maybe some of you have grown in grace to the point that this is not true, but the reality is, is I'm the center of my own world. I tend to view life by how it affects me. Kind of a sobering thought. I had a guy one time years ago, he was commending me for something positive that I had done. And I said, look, you got to understand. I said, I've never done a selfless act in my life. Jesus alone is praiseworthy. Now, by his grace, he may allow us to do praiseworthy deeds, 
but because of our heart, we don't get the credit for them. Y'all hear what I'm saying on that? I mean, we just got to be honest about this. And part of growing in grace is we begin to see the world more and more through his lens rather than through how it affects me. Maybe I'm a worse sinner than all of y'all. Entirely possible. Entirely possible. Thank God my wife's not here to bear witness. But anyway, everything begins with God's self-revelation, and God repeats himself. He reminds us of the truth about himself over and over and over and over. I heard a guy say recently, he said, words that soak into your ears and your soul are whispered and repeated. They're not yelled. See, we live in a society that wants the next big thing. We're adrenaline junkies. We want a big show. We want something dramatic. We don't like where Paul told the Ephesians or Thessalonians or somebody, live a quiet life working with your own hands. Y'all remember that passage? We want the next big thing. We want something dramatic. We want shouting. But God, more often than not, speaks in a still, small voice. A.W. Tozer said, God speaks to those who will listen. And I'll tell you, it takes some effort to quiet your soul enough to hear. Y'all with me? It's the truth. It's the truth. I mean, I, you call it ADHD, you call it whatever you want to, but I'm telling you, man, if there's nothing going on, I get jittery. And it's a battle for me to quiet my soul to hear what my father wants to say to me. But we're going to talk about it in a minute, how important and how worth it that is. God is awesome, and he is worth every effort that we make to comprehend more of him. I hope that you believe that, and I hope that you will practice that. So I'm going to mention a few things today. Now, some of y'all will probably think I'm some big liberal up here because I'm going to mention a catechism. Now, I grew up, and I love Southern Baptist. I, 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 that's the, the, the uh, fountain that I came from. And I praise God because I was taught the Bible. Uh, Bible. <laughs> I was taught the Bible. I was taught the, Bi- I was taught the Bible Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And I praise God. I learned the way of salvation in a, in a Southern Baptist church. Glory to God. There is no, I am not downplaying them or deprecating them in any way. But we thought of catechisms and creeds as something that those liberal churches do. Now, I found out later that that wasn't actually true because all the creeds were was a bunch of people, for the most part, who loved God with all their heart and had a reverence for Scripture and sat down and wrote down things that were true about God. It would be like if I was with Jason and just by some miracle, Jason had to say something that was wise and... um, that was wise and true about God, and I wrote it down. That's what the creeds are. You know, we, a lot of times in the modern church, people throw rocks at the word theology. But the cool thing about it, what y'all don't recognize is today, I've had the privilege, counting y'all, to sit in a room and talk to 260 or so theologians. Because you are one. You have thoughts about God. That makes you a theologian. The question is whether you, they're worth a hoot or not, right? And as they're informed by the Scripture, they are. 
So I thank God for people who have wrestled. For example, y'all, we wouldn't have a doctrine of the Trinity without theologians. Somebody sat down, somebody's council of somewhere at some point, Nicaea, something like that, I don't know, and hammered out what does the Bible teach about the nature of God. It's not this. It does say this, but it's not that. Sometimes some theological things, I've said this before, it's easier to say what they don't mean than what they do mean precisely. But, but God's like that. He's awesome. He's beyond our understanding. So, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, what is God? And by the way, if you ever look at these catechisms, most of them have the scripture reference under each word where it came from in the Bible. What is God? God is a spirit. He's infinite. We could stay right there for a while. Infinite. He cannot be encompassed. Whatever you think, he's more. Whew. Sometimes it makes your brain hurt, doesn't it? It's like it feels like it's going to flip-flop in your head. He's eternal. He never began. He'll never end. This, this, this right here, this truth right here, is what I remember distinctly when I was about 10 years old. I was playing outside, digging in the dirt, I'm sure, and... I was thinking about something the preacher had said about hell and God's punishment on sin and that it was eternal, that it would never end. And I remember, frankly, this overwhelming sense of terror. Like, what in the world? This God who never started and will never end. And then I remembered that the pastor said, but Jesus Christ shields us from the wrath of God that is to come. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, which is the verse that Spurgeon was saved by hearing. An old deacon was, who'd never preached before was reading Isaiah. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And God converted Charles Spurgeon. But I realized that God has made provision so that the punishment that's due my sin, I don't have to take. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, and he died on my behalf if I would trust in him and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. These thoughts are not just an academic exercise. God intends the truths about him to move our soul. And in my own life, that has happened. God's unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. It's called immutability. I, the Lord your God, change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. If God has set his mercy upon you, his mercy is upon you. Both now and forevermore, bless his name, and he will not change his mind. God is not like any other being. There is none like him. Exodus, Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel, Jeremiah, Psalms, they all echo the same thought. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. To whom will you compare me? This is why God says, don't compare me to anything else in all creation. Don't create images in your mind and in your heart that are not true to who I am. 
God is not a benign force, but he's an eternal person. Now, not a human, but he's a person. He has what we would consider all the elements of personhood. He has volition, his will. He communicates. He interacts with his creation. He is conscious of his own existence. Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us do all these things. Genesis chapter 2, God personally, I love this picture of God almost stooping down and forming man, as it were, with his hands, but he's not a man, forming man from the dust, and God breathing into him the very life of God and saying, live. Genesis chapter 3, God walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Can you imagine what that was like? I mean, God doesn't have a body, but somehow he was there with them, and they were communing and having fellowship. God is a person. And then also in Genesis chapter 3, we see God interacting with the man and the woman after their sin, and he curses the serpent and decrees judgment that will come upon him. But there's also something else that happens in Genesis chapter 3. And you guys know what it is, I bet. God has said, in the day you sin, you shall surely die. And Adam and Eve were naked. They were, laid, they were naked before God. And God gives us the first glimpse of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. Because he takes an animal and he kills it. Blood was shed and it covered their nakedness. And this points forward to the day that Jesus will be the perfect Lamb of God, and he will shed his blood, innocent blood, so that all who believe in him would be saved. All who believe in him would have the guilt of their own sin paid for. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ paid the price for the sins of all who will trust in him. Their sins are removed Apart, the Bible says, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus shed his blood for you if you will trust in him. God is a person. He refers to himself with human terms, father, shepherd, redeemer. And he interacts with his people and with his creation. God also is eternal. He has always existed, which just absolutely fries my brain. I'm serious, guys. Y'all need to be thinking about this stuff. I'm sure you all have. Think about some more. I mean, how in the what? I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> some of you are saying, so shut up. Uh, I, I mean, God is Awesome. He's other than anything we can imagine. He has always existed. Revelation 1, he was, he is, and he is to come. And we, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago. His name that he revealed, Moses, Moses is there, the bush is burning and not consumed. Moses asked, in my opinion, a logical question. He says, well, when I get there, who am I going to tell him sent me? And God says, tell him I am sent you. I mean, he's the, God is the reference point for everything else. He's the only fixed place. I, I just am. Something else will be. Something else was. God is. 
Hebrews said, Hebrews says, for those who would approach God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who will diligently seek him. He is. God just is. He is eternal. He always existed. And God is not a conception of human thinking. Uh, Many times, philosophers like to try to say that, well, it's just a projection of what you would like God to be, right? C.S. Lewis talked about this in the book, The Problem of Pain. He said, ancient man never would have come up with an idea of a good and kind and benevolent God. He said, think about what it was when man was more primitive. He said it was a world that was, quote, red of tooth and claw. We live by it was the Latin words lex talionis. It was like if, survival of the fittest, kill or be killed, you know, hardship, disease, short life, all those things. He said those people would have never come up with an idea of a God that was good. It had to come from him. Interesting read if you ever want to check that out. But it's a great thought. And without God's self-revelation, people come up with false gods that look remarkably like screwed up people. Think about the Roman gods and the Greek gods and the Hindu gods. Really? They change their mind? They're evil? They're corrupt? But not the one true God. He's perfect in all his ways. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. So God right now, is fully present here with me and you. He's not divided. I'm not getting one... How many people are there on earth these days? Eight billion or so? I'm not getting one eight billionth. He's fully present with me. And that brother who's sitting in a church in rural India right now, he's fully present with him. And if you were on the backside of Pluto in a spacesuit. He would be fully there with you. How in the world is that? He's everywhere all the time. Oh, God's omniscient. He knows everything all the time. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare before him to whom we must give an account. God is aware of everything that is. He's aware of every fact. He's aware of everything at all times. He doesn't need a memory upgrade. He doesn't need... He is just aware. He knows Everything. He's aware of all events, past, present, and future, all of history. And he's aware of the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Now, that's where it begins to hit home because that's really what Hebrews 4.13 was talking about. He knows my heart. So theoretically, hypothetically, let's say that there was a day where I could avoid committing any sinful act. Some of you who know me well go, yeah, right. Just say there was. Let's say I didn't commit any sinful acts. Well, throughout the history of the church, there have been things called sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins or commission is acts 
that are displeasing to God. I commit a sin, right? I do something that doesn't please God. What about the sins of omission? Sins of omission are the things that I should have done that I didn't. Oh, boy. Let's say there was a day where I did everything I was that pleased God, and I didn't do anything that didn't please God. I still have a problem because he knows the thoughts and intentions of my heart. Brothers and sisters, we are guilty. We are guilty because of what we inherited from Adam, which was a fallen sinful nature that was bent contrary to God, and we're sinful because our own self. But we have a Savior, Jesus Christ the righteous. And I pray that God by the Holy Spirit would lift him up and we would see him as he is and we would see the sacrifice that God has offered for us. And we would, as the Bible says, set apart in our heart Jesus Christ as Lord. He is, I used to have a little drawing by my desk years ago when I worked at the bank at a job I hated with all, I hated it. Oh, so bored. But I had a little picture and it was a depiction of Jesus and it said, Jesus Christ, our only hope. That's it. He is our only hope because God is omniscient. He knows everything. The scripture says, you know, where can I hide from his presence? And God is also omnipotent. He can do all his holy will. So philosophers like to raise questions like, could God make a rock so big that he couldn't move it? Well, the problem is with the question, right? Could God do evil? God can do all his holy will. God's will is to be who he is. And he will not do any of those things. He will not be evil. He will not change because he is the Lord our God. Isaiah chapter 40 again. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. Remember this? See who created these. He brings out their host by number calling them all by name and by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them, all those stars, they're exactly where they should be. And he knows them by name. All the host of heaven, not one is missing. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. And his understanding is unsearchable. God neither waxes nor wanes. He neither increases nor decreases. He is. But remember, he's a person. He's interacting with his creation. Jeremiah chapter 32, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? No. I want to encourage you guys. Some of you may have seen this before. This is a a video from the um, Answers in Genesis. It's called Created Cosmos. I would encourage you to get a copy of this. It will affect you. I watched it again this week. I've watched it before, and I just get a sense of the immensity of God. When we start talking about 50 million light years, and them trying to describe how big that is, and yet there's more. And there's this galaxy that's a thousand light years away, and in it are a billion stars. Now, I don't know how they counted them. 
But the scripture says he knows them all by name. This is who God is. He's big. He's awesome. He's wise. He's powerful. Now, let me just, we're going to talk about the goodness of God in a minute. But let me say something right here. If God is so powerful, why didn't he fix my situation? Isn't that where, I mean, if he knows me, and I'm his, why didn't he fix my situation? Why did I have to go through this? This is called theodicy. And every one of us wrestles with it. You might just might not have known what it was called. It's, the word is theo, theos, and dike, which is judgment. So it is, how do we vindicate the existence of a loving and all-powerful God with suffering? Now, it's a little bit easier, a little bit easier to think about the suffering of people in general. Well, because we would say they brought it on themselves, right? But what about you? So years ago, I was part of a Bible study. It was called Friends of Internationals. And we took exchange students from Kennesaw State University, and they were almost all from China. And we went through the story of God with them. We told the stories very precisely from the Bible. We told them the stories of the Bible. And I'll tell you, it's fascinating the questions you get when you talk to somebody who doesn't come from a Christian context, and they look at it with a different lens. Because we got to the part of the temptation in the fall And a Chinese girl said, why did the God allow the serpent to live? And I'll tell you, that's when all your little theological niceties go out the window. Because I went, that's a great question. And and then real quickly, you go, I don't know. I don't know. Why did God not intervene the way you wanted him to in your situation? Let me say this. You're you're faced with a couple of options in situations like this. I asked God to do this, and he didn't answer in the way I wanted. So you can either say, God doesn't love me. Hopefully most of you will throw that one out the window. God doesn't care. That doesn't work. God didn't know it happened. Well, Strike three. God wasn't strong enough to do anything. None of those work. And you're left with, his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Because I'm going to tell you guys, there are times we will not understand it until we're with him face to face. And I will say this, it may be that I think it's very likely that when we see him face-to-face, it won't matter. Because in the light, what does the hymn say? In the, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. There are things that weigh on us right now, and they are real, and they are hard. And my heart breaks for some of the things that people, some of you are going through. Lord, please, and I'm asking you right now in Jesus' name, Father, please intervene in the situations in this church with people who are suffering. 
Lord, please bring, please bring healing to those who are sick. Please bring reconciliation to relationships that are broken. Please bring sanctification to those who are struggling with sin. Father, we ask you, Lord, we believe you for it. Amen. But guys, there are times when we've done all we know to do, and the answer doesn't come the way we want to get it. Now, I want to ask you, is your faith rooted in an outcome or in a person? Because that is the anchor beyond the veil. God is good. He is active in my life. And I'm going to do what Jesus said. Jesus taught this parable that men should always pray and not faint. I'm going to continue to ask. Now, I was talking to a sister this morning, and she told me her, her husband was one of the sweetest men I've ever met. It's one of those people that every time you said hey to him, you get convicted. You know what I'm saying? The presence of God was on him. He's sweet, gentle, and kind, everything I'm not. You want me to sit back down since I'm not gentle? Anyway, um, he died. He died of cancer. And she, t- and she had had another tragedy before that. And she told me, she said, years and years I asked God, why, why, why? And finally one day, I, the, she said, I know where I was and what I was doing. And the Lord said, it's time to stop asking why. Because who is what's more important. And I don't want to ever downplay the suffering that somebody goes through. Please don't hear me saying that. I'm not trying to gloss over this and have some Pollyanna issue. I'm just saying there comes to some point where you're at the end of your rope and the knot at the end of the rope is the character and person of God, and that's all you've got to hang on to. That's why there was an old spiritual that said, we'll understand it better by and by, because that means that sometimes we don't understand it. Now, Spurgeon said this. He said, there are times when I cannot trace God's hand. I don't know what he's doing, but I have to trust his heart. So our faith is in the person of the one true God who revealed himself in his word and through Jesus Christ, who he sacrificed for us at the greatest cost so that we could, the Bible says in John chapter 1, He came to his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to those who believed upon his name, to them he became the power, he gave the power to become the children of God. God's not saying to you, just come on in, I'll let you in my kingdom, you can be one of my subjects. He's saying, come to my table, sit down with me. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear Jesus saying, come unto me. Not come into a religion. Not come into a way of living. Not conform yourself. He says, come unto me, all you who are laboring heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Believe on the Lord Jesus. I said, I said this yesterday. I said, God doesn't work real well with formulas. Except for this one. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Praise his holy name. And here, let me say this. God answers prayers. God heals the sick. 
God restores relationships. All the, there's a ditch on both sides of this road, right? You can either expect an outcome and not get it and shake your fist and turn away from him, or you can believe that God is like a giant clock maker who wound it all up and just letting things go as they will, case or us or all, whatever happens. Or we can walk down the Bible middle, which teaches us all these things about God, and the story of the Bible is God. It's not me. But like I said, that's the way I tend to view the world. And God is all these things, but he's also good. Now, so there's a story in the Chronicles of Narnia, a part of the Chronicles of Narnia. All the, y'all all, I saw all y'all look up. Where Mr. Beaver, because animals talk in Narnia. Y'all knew that, right? And I actually think they probably talked in Eden. I don't know that for a fact, but I bet you they did. Y'all ever looked at your dog? And thought, man, that dog wants to say something to me. <laughs> and then I say something to them. Why'd you poop on the carpet? Sorry. Or why don't you quit barking? Good gracious. So Mr. Beaver has told her about Aslan, the great lion who represents Jesus. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I'll feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. So we think about God's goodness like this. God did this for me. So boy, God is good. I got a new job. God is good. God is good whether he never did anything. Think about this. If God had never created, he's good because that's who he is. Goodness means he's morally right. He always does what is right. He always values what is right because he is the epitome of what is right. And we say God is good, but can we say God is good when we're in hardship? Because he's good whether we acknowledge it or not. Acknowledge it or not. God's goodness, meaning that he's morally right, actually means that he must judge sin. That's not the definition of good I was thinking about, right? If he's morally right in every way, that means that he will deal with everything that is wrong. If there was a judge down here at the Cherokee County bench, and he had in front of him a person who had committed murders and Let's say Jack was doing criminal law at that point. He's not. He's doing real estate law. Great real estate lawyer, by the way, Jack Kim. Um, 20 bucks. Um, <laughs> but this man is before the judge, and he's clearly guilty. He's got it written all over. He's even admitted that he committed the murders. And the judge says, uh, not guilty. Is that a good judge? That's injustice. God will never do that. The Bible, he, this is what he revealed himself to Moses. He said in, in um, Numbers 32, I think's where it is. I don't remember, Exodus or Numbers, one of those Old Testament books, 32, I think. He said, I am the Lord, the Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He said, but I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In the book of Psalms, it says that it is an abomination to declare the 
guilty, innocent. God will always judge sin, and that's a part of his goodness. So what we really need to be grateful for is that God has chosen to show mercy. Justice is a necessary part of who he is. He could be God and not have chosen to show mercy. That was a decision that God made not compelled by anything or anyone else. He said, he decided, I will show mercy. He did not have to show mercy. It would have been in no way a diminishment of the essence of who he is, but he has shown mercy. It's a decision he made and demonstrated at the highest cost. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What I hope the Lord will do through this, and I'm bringing it in for a landing here, y'all. I'm circling the airport right now. Is he will elevate all of our understanding in the direction of who God really is. Like I said, we're never going to understand him completely, but we can have our understanding of God elevated. And as it's elevated, his beauty, his purity, his holiness, his eternal nature and divine attributes, as it says in Romans 1, that we would be overwhelmed with gratitude that he would send his son Jesus to pay the price for our sins. This is the gospel. So what is our highest goal and privilege as humans? Back to the Westminster Catechism, if you guys will forgive me. First question, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man, I never, I wasn't taught that. The first part I was taught, you need to glorify God. You need to get right. You need to stop doing that. You need to start doing this. Those are true. But I wasn't taught about enjoying God forever. The Bible says, in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The deepest longing of the human soul is only going to be satisfied by the Lord himself. All our hearts are restless until they find their home in him. Pascal, who was a mathematician back in the 1700s, he said, every man is born with a God-shaped vacuum. And only the glory of God in the face of Jesus can fill it. May God increase that in each of us. Second question, what rule has God given us so that we may know how to glorify him and enjoy him? And the answer is the word of God. Contained in the scriptures of the Old Testament, it's the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and obey God. And the third question, I'm only going to do three. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. We can't create gods from our own understanding. Our understanding of God has to be shaped by the Holy Spirit taking the word of God and revealing it to us. Because... We fall in the trap of determining who God is based on our experience of him. Think about what I'm saying here. Because this happened in my life or didn't happen in my life, that must be who's got, what's true about God. No. 
What's true about God is what he has said. Neither in trials nor in blessings can you say this happened, so this is what's true about God. Only through what he has revealed can we know him accuracy. So my question again, is your faith based on an outcome or in a person? And we're going to pray about outcomes. We're going to keep praying for the right outcomes. Right outcomes. The outcomes that we believe would please God. But at the end of the day, God is God. And I want to be personally at a place where my faith in him is so deep that I could say, though he slay me, yet I will serve him. Because he's, he is like a beacon, and all my attention is focused on him. And he is the focal point. He is the lens. He's the one through which I understand everything else. So, Zach, if you guys want to come on up. God is different and greater and more than we will ever experience, even in heaven. God is great. He's greater than we can imagine. He is good. He alone defines what is right. God is just. He will punish every particle of rebellion. But God is merciful, and he poured out his punishment on his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that everyone who would come to him in faith and declare, Jesus Christ is Lord over all things. Jesus Christ is my Lord, shall be saved. So I want to challenge you today to worship the Lord with your head, your heart, and your hands. Study to learn about him. There are valuable resources that can stir our heart to worship God. Obviously, starting with the Bible. Allow the truth about God to warm your heart and to stir you. And then let that propel you to obey him and witness for him in this world. Our Father, Lord, what small fraction what a small fraction of who you are do we understand. But Lord, I know that in your word you've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through him who loved us. Lord, I pray this morning for your people. I pray that you would comfort the one who is struggling. I pray that you would cause us to lift our eyes to see you as high and lifted up and so that the other elements of life would have the proper perspective. Holy Spirit, take the word of God and reveal Jesus to us. Y'all, I want to give you one more thing to think about. I promise this is it. I have a friend whose son died and what's the answer to that? I don't, I don't. What are you going to say in a situation like that? And there's not much you can say. But I use an analogy and it's the best I can come to be helpful for you. And somebody else had told me, so you guys know what a tapestry is. Some of you have heard this before. It's a, it's a woven piece of art. Some of them are amazing, huge, and intricate. We're like 
looking at the backside of a tapestry. And if you've ever seen that, it's just random threads. The colors don't make sense. You've got threads that are this way and threads that are going that way. Some of them are knotted up. And you look at it and go, what is this chaos? But Christian faith says that God knows, God knows what he's doing. And there will come a day when he takes that tapestry and he turns it around and we see what it was that he was doing. And we live for that day where God wipes every tear from our eyes. And I believe when we see what it was God was doing, we're probably going to do what Job did, which is we'll cover our mouth. May God grant strength and grace to those of you who are struggling now and give you a vision of him that is big and transcendent. It gives you the strength to endure until the day comes when he brings the answer. And I pray that it's in this life. Amen.